He's the Lord of Speech, the Master of Speech, eloquent in speech, the one with mastery over speech, the one with limitless words, having true speech, the speaker of truths, the one that indicates the four truths. He is irreversible, non-returning, the guide for the mode of travel of the self-evolving rhino prachekas, definitely delivered through various means of definite deliverance. He's the singular cause of the great elemental states. He's a bhikshu, full monk, in arhat with enemies destroyed, defilements depleted, with desire departed, senses tamed. Having attained ease of mind, having attained a state of no fear, he is the one with elements cooled down, no longer muddied. Endowed to the full with pure awareness and movement, he's the blissfully gone, superb in his knowledge of the world. He's the one not grasping for mine, not grasping for a me, abiding in the mode of travel of the two truths. He's the one that's standing at the far shore beyond recurring samsara, with what needs to be done having been done settled on dry land, his cleaving sword of discriminating awareness having drawn out the deep awareness of what's unique. He is the hallowed dharma, the ruler of the dharma, the shining one, the superb illuminator of the world. He is the powerful lord of dharma, the king of dharma, the one who shows the most excellent pathway of the mind. With his aim accomplished, his thoughts accomplished, and rid of all conceptual thought, he's the non-conceptual, inexhaustible sphere, the superb, imperishable sphere of reality. What we need is a Buddha-verse emerging. In other words, we need nirvana emerging. It's called Enlightenment. podcast. Uh, that verse from the intro was from the Manjushri Nama Samgiti Tantra, a revered and hallowed document very popular in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And I chose that section to introduce the topic of this podcast for reasons that will hopefully be clear later on. Because I am your run-of-the-mill, semi-non-malignant narcissist, while I was listening back to my own podcast on episode 8 of What a Buddha Is, the part I enjoyed listening to the most, possibly because it was the most confusing, was reading from Dogen Zenji, Eihei Dogen, the Japanese master of both Rinzai and Soto, or Linji and Kaodong schools of Chinese Chan Buddhism. And I read a few excerpts from his collected works titled The Treasury of the True Dharma Eye, or Shobogenzo, about the Buddha. And there's just a quality about Dogen's writing that I've not encountered anywhere in the world, not in Buddhism or anywhere else. The personage of Dogen is of great interest to me, not just because of my familial ties to the Japanese Zen tradition, but the sort of unfolding of my realization about his importance to the history of Buddhism and the history of the earth began with my deep curiosity in the lectures of Alan Watts, and to the even deeper infatuation with Zen mind beginner's mind from Shinryu Suzuki Roshi, and blossoming fully what I learned about Master Shenhua at the same time that I got my copy of Shobogenzo in the mail. And this was a very transformative period for me, and I got the profound sense of not only was the Buddha real, but that his body, speech, and mind had reached out to me 2,600 years into the future and grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and shoved my face in undeniable reality. Here in Master Shenhua was the living proof of the continuance of the Chan school of realized enlightened beings, who came to San Francisco in the 1960s, where I would be born 20 years later, and also where Shinryu Suzuki established his Zen center. But also here in the Shobogenzo was the Buddha Vachana, or awakened speech, of the greatest Zen master in Japanese history right in my hand, and it's more than just the tales of his life, the grandeur of the Zen temples throughout Japan, the striking appearance of Zen monks with their stark elegance and style that transcends all time and culture. It was the superhuman level of intellectual prowess and literary sophistication 
there was a clear indication of a mind light years ahead of what I had ever thought was possible. So the fact that I was so impressed by the writings of Dogen was probably due to the fact that I'm not that smart or well-read, and I was a graphic design major and not an expert in philosophy of religion or ancient Asian literature. And since that was many years ago that I first encountered Dogen, I've definitely learned that he was not some anomalous freak of nature, but that this level of spiritual and intellectual brilliance has revealed itself throughout human history, not just in Japan, but in India with Dharmakirti and Dignaga, amongst countless others, in China with Zhiyi and Zhuangzang, amongst countless others, in Tibet with Longchenpa and Tsongkhapa, amongst countless others, and in Japan with Kukai and Honen, amongst countless others, and not to mention the other philosophical and religious and scientific traditions around the world. I've learned that this level of genius is simply evidence that some humans carry a tremendous amount of scholarly merit from past lives and it manifests as them being head and shoulders above the rest of us in their propensity and ability to hold and work out extremely complicated and abstruse ideas in their head. But in terms of the Buddha Dharma, with its expositions of Pratitya Sumutpada, or dependent origination or causality, the royal reason of relativity, incredibly, ridiculously advanced methods of inductive reasoning, the reality of mahashunyata or emptiness as it relates to how reality exists and functions, and the concept of nirvana or mahabodhi, the realization of awakening into the very ground of reality and the ultimate nature of which all things are a part of and arise from, the very foundation of and transcendence of conscious experience, and the extremely transformative and sophisticated meditation techniques it employs, I would say that Buddhism is in a privileged position to make definitive statements about reality that can be and are backed up by logic and evidence that other thought and spiritual systems just can't offer. But such proof is tricky as it is only available to the consciousness of one who is open-minded and willing to study and practice as is recommended. Dogen to me is a standout example of this reality, or possibility of what humans are capable of if they take the Buddhist education system to its furthest consummation. But Dogen's writings are just words. And while they are extremely special and astounding words, I think that Dogen wanted to convey in them that you should go beyond words and beyond meaning, and to touch the actual substance. They are a finger pointing at your own face, but when you see that finger, you realize that you've never seen your own face, just its reverse reflection in a mirror. And what's more is, you realize that even though Dogen can see your face, he cannot give you his own experience. He can tell you about your face, but you must strive for yourself to see what he has seen, to have your own experience, if that makes any sense. So while though Zen is not my actual practice lineage, I have a very deep reverence and feel a deep bond with him and consider him my guru. Dogen has been a tremendous help in my life and in my practice. Perhaps the most profound experience of my life was the moment that I realized that Buddha looks through my own eyes and sits with my body, and that Buddha did not die, but experiences our joys and sorrows with the mind of wisdom and compassion as us. Words on a page are just words on a page, and are only meaningful in dependence upon a mind that can read them and experience their referent. The practice of the Dharma is life itself, but it isn't if you don't know that it is, or how it is, or why it is. So since the translations of Dogen's Shobogenzo are free online, I would like to make it a regular thing to read a chapter on here intermittently, really just so that I can listen to it over and over again myself, and understand it myself. And I don't even know why you'd want to listen to me talk about it when Shohaku Okamura, a saintly disciple of Dogen's, lectures all the time. But if you were introduced to Dogen and his lineage through my podcast, then my life has not been in vain. So for my own learning and realization and my own pleasure, I'm going to give a brief biography of Dogen written by Adrian Chan Wiles and then read a chapter of Shobogenzo. So from the article, Zen Master Dogen in Song Dynasty China and its Implications for Chan Buddhism. Zen Master Dogen is often referred to within Chinese sources as Dao Yuan Chan Shi, with the Japanese pronunciation of Do and Gen, literally translating to Wei Originator or Wei Essence. He was also known by other Dharma names of Chi Chuan or Rare Mystery or Dao Chuan or Wei Mystery, 
and Fo Fa Fang, or Buddha Dharma residence. Dogen is recorded as being born into the noble Minamoto family of Kyoto in 1200 CE. The Chinese language sources refer to Dogen's family as Guizhu Jia Ting, which translates as aristocratic household. This is an important distinction, as Dogen is believed to have been related to the 62nd Japanese Emperor Murakami, and as such entitled to hold a high office within the Japanese imperial system. This biographical story associated with Dogen is reminiscent of the life story attributed to the historical Buddha who lived in ancient India, and who was also of a high caste birth and entitled to rule. Dogen, like the Buddha, relinquished his birthright of high office and instead decided to dedicate his life to the pursuance of the Dharma. Dogen's dissatisfaction with the ordinary world appears to have been formulated in his early childhood, when his father died when he was three years old. This tragic event was followed by the loss of his mother when he was only eight years old. This created a trauma in his mind that resulted in him deciding not to pursue a political career, but instead to renounce the world and become an ordained Buddhist monk. From the age of 8 to 13, Dogen intensely studied the Buddhist texts at home before finally leaving to become a monk. In fact, the Japanese language source records describe Dogen as escaping the family home at 13 years old and heading to Mount Hiei, situated in northeast of Kyoto, to seek the advice of his uncle, the monk renowned as Ryokan. At the age of 14, his head was shaved by the monk named Koen and received the Bodhisattva precepts. It was here on Mount Hiei that Dogen studied the Buddhist texts extensively and realized that Buddhism contains both a deep internal and shallow external teaching. This led to Dogen formulating the following question. Both exoteric and esoteric teachings explain that a person in essence has true Dharma nature and is originally a body of Buddha nature. If so, why do all Buddhas in the past, present, and future arouse the wish for and seek enlightenment? The Japanese tradition of the Tendai school had its historical roots in the Tiantai or divine platform tradition of China. However, by the time of Dogen's existence in the Kamakura period, it had diverted dramatically away from the Chinese tradition, as it adapted to local conditions. Tendai had adopted the philosophical thinking associated with the Shingon school, and had incorporated elements of Zen Buddhism together with the Vinaya discipline into its rubric. This led to a form of quietism that allowed the Tendai monks to work exclusively as scribes and spend their time copying out sutras. The intellectual and spiritual vigor had become muted, which was exasperated by the fact that the Tendai school on Mount Hiei had split into two armed camps, with each camp centered around two competing temples. A new type of Buddhist cleric arose on Mount Hiei, namely that of the monk-soldier, or sohei in Japanese. These monks trained in armed and unarmed martial arts and were used by politicized temples to protect power beyond the temple confines. This confusion of distinct Buddhist philosophies and the emergence of politicized Buddhism led to a diversion away from genuine spiritual investigation, and probably explained why Dogen could not find adequate spiritual instruction on the mountain. Dogen studied the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, and was particularly struck by the following passage. Shakyamuni Buddha said, All sentient beings everywhere originally possess the Buddha nature. The Tathagata exists eternally and is without change. This passage served to focus the young Dogen's mind, and led him to seek out an enlightened master who could genuinely show him his own Buddha nature. His master, Abbot Cohen, sent Dogen away from Mount Hiei to study with the learned monk named Kowin of Onjoji in an attempt to further his education. It was Kowin who first suggested to Dogen that he should consider studying the Zen method and travel to Song Dynasty Chaya to seek a profound answer to his spiritual question. To this end, Kowin introduced Dogen to the Tendai practitioner and abbot who had just returned from studying Chan in China, the monk named Yosai or Myoan Eisai of Keninji in Kyoto. Yosai had inherited the Huanglong or Oryu branch of Linji tradition, or Rinzai school of Chan Zen in China, but he passed away in 1215 from an epidemic of dysentery only one year after apparently meeting Dogen in 1214. Following Yosai's death, Dogen was taken as a Zen student by the new abbot of Keninji, the monk named Myozen. 
Myozen was the Dharma inheritor of Yosai, but in the Japanese biographical records, there's a disagreement as to whether Dogen met with and trained under Yosai for a year between 1214 to 1214-15, or whether he entered Keninji much later in 1217 and simply began his training under Myozen. Whatever the facts of the matter, it was with Myozen that Dogen would study Rinzai Zen and Tendai Buddhism, and eventually receive Dharma transmission in the Rinzai tradition in 1221 at just 21 years of age. This made Dogen the 10th patriarch of the Japanese lineage of the Huai Long Rinzai school of Zen Buddhism. In Japan at the time, there was much political turmoil and warfare, and this probably influenced Dogen to an even greater degree to overcome the doubts he harbored about life and death. This is despite the fact that he was engaged in meditation practice and through Myozen's strict influence was keeping the Bodhisattva precepts and the transmission precepts associated with the Huang Long lineage. Dogen's time spent at the Zen temple Keninji in his younger years served as a foundational training for his eventual visit to China. As good as the masters were around him, Dogen could not progress his realization beyond a certain point of understanding. At this time, many Buddhists in Japan viewed China as the depository of true Buddhist knowledge and the place where true progression and profound understanding was to be found. Dogen traveled to China as a means to seek enlightenment, and it's important to understand that Dogen was already a Dharma inheritor of the Rinzai Zen school and had extensively studied the teachings of the Tendai school before leaving Japan for China. Although young, Dogen had ordained taking the Bodhisattva precepts, been highly motivated in his studies, and had received a good education within Japanese Buddhism. Dogen in Southern Song Dynasty, China Dogen and his teacher Myozen, together with two other monks, left Kyoto on boat on the 27th day of the third month of 1223, and arrived in the middle of the third month at Hakata Port. Hakata Port is located in the northern region of southern Japanese island of Kyushu. By the time Dogen set sail for China on a merchant vessel, Hakata had been an important port linking Japan and China for centuries. On the voyage, Dogen records that he fell ill with diarrhea. However, Dogen's mind was focused by a terrible wind that made the crossing to China highly dangerous. He forgot about his illness and the symptoms disappeared. At the beginning of the fourth month of 1223, Dogen, Myozen, and the other monks arrived safely in China. He was 24 years old. Their ship made land at a place recorded as Mingzhou, situated in Qingyuan Prefecture. Today this corresponds to the Ningbo area of northeast Zhejiang province. Zhejiang is a coastal province situated in the northeast of China. Dogen's biography suggests that there was a bureaucratic delay when he reached China due to the incompatibility of the ordination he received in Japan. His ordination may have been viewed as incomplete by the Chinese authorities due to the fact that he had taken the Bodhisattva precepts but had not yet received the Vinaya precepts. In effect, this meant that Dogen was not a fully ordained Buddhist monastic, but only considered a novice of lesser status. Dogen spent three months aboard the ship before the Chinese authorities permitted him to land. In this regard, considering the uncertainty of the situation, Dogen exercised considerable patience, understanding, and endurance. This was remarkable fortitude for a young man of just 24 years of age. During this time, Dogen continued his practice while staying in his cabin and reading the Buddhist sutras, and compiled information about the many monasteries and temples in Zhejiang area of China and beyond. Dogen's master Myozen was allowed off the ship much earlier and immediately set about visiting the Jingfu Temple in Mingzhou and the Jingde Temple situated on Mount Tiantong. Jingde Temple was significant for Myozen as his teacher Yosai had trained there in 1189 during his visit to China. Indeed, it was the Jingde Temple that Yosai inherited the Huanglong branch of the Linji school of Chan Buddhism from Chan master Chuan Hai Chang. The motivation for Dogen to visit China, at least officially, was to pay homage to the Linji school of Chan Buddhism in general and to the Huanglong school in particular. The Huanglong school can be traced to Chan master Huanglong Huinan, who lived during the Northern Song Dynasty. He originally came from Jinzhou, which is situated in the Jiangxi province, southeast China, but established his school on Yellow Dragon Mountain. This school is recorded as lasting over 150 years operating from this mountain. Huinan originally trained with Chan master Le Tan Chenggong of the Yunmen school, but after failing to achieve the final breakthrough in his self-cultivation, he was sent to study under Chan master Shi Shuang Chuyan of the Linji school. An example of the enlightening Chan dialogues exchanged between these two masters is as follows. 
When Huang Long visited Shi Shuang in his abbot's room, Shi Shuang said, Chang Gong studied under Yun Men's Chan, so he must surpass Yun Men's teaching. When Yun Men spared Dong Shan Shou Chu three blows with the staff, did Dong Shan suffer the blows or not? Huang Long said, he suffered the blows. Shi Shuang said fiercely, from morning till night, the magpies cry and the crows call, all of them in response to the blows they've suffered. Shi Shuang then sat in cross-legged position and Huang Long lit incense and bowed to him. Shi Shuang later asked, Zhao Zhou said, the old lady of Mount Tai, I'll go check her out for you. But where was the place he checked her out? Huang Long sweated profusely, but he couldn't answer. The next day, Huang Long went to Shi Shuang's room again. Shi Shuang berated him unceasingly. Huang Long said, Is cursing a compassionate way of carrying out the teaching? Shi Shuang yelled, Try cursing and see! At these words, Huang Long experienced a great awakening. He then wrote the following verse. The eminent adept Zhao Zhou had his reasons for checking out the old lady. Now the four seas are like a mirror, and a pilgrim no longer hates the road. So I'm not going to pretend like I understand that story at all, uh, but like all Chan Koans, there's an assumed backstory and implicit meanings behind the references, but this story is meant to demonstrate an interaction of an enlightened master putting to test the spiritual acumen, wisdom, and realization of a student that usually leads to an awakening experience directly pointing out the actual nature of mind, whether or not the question is answered sufficiently. So, back to the article. This example may be taken as indicative of the type of encounter dialogue utilized within the Huang Long branch of Lin Ji Chan, and the method its masters use to enlighten their students. In and of itself, the Huang Long branch, although linearly distinct, linearly distinct, does not divert in practice from the Chinese Chan in general, or the Lin Ji tradition in particular. It may also be reasonably assumed that a similar encounter occurred between Yosai and his master Huai Chang, between Yosai and his student Miu Zhen, and between Miu Zhen and his student Dogen. It was Miu Zhen's judgment that Dogen had attained complete enlightenment, and that this made him suitable to inherit the Huanglong lineage in Japan and become fully recognized and acknowledged as the tenth patriarch. It was this tenth patriarch of the Huanglong lineage that the Chinese authorities made wait for three months before allowing him to enter onto Chinese soil. But when he did land, he embarked on a tour of prominent Linji temples and monasteries in and around the Ningbo area. As Dogen, despite being enlightened, still retained doubts about the true nature of existence, he sought out the wisdom of enlightened Chan masters on the Chinese mainland. The retainment of some doubt after the initial enlightenment experience is not unknown within the Chan literature and does not invalidate the awakening experience itself. Although the empty mind ground can be penetrated and understood in all its implications, in an instantaneous matter, it is also correct to acknowledge that in many awakening incidents, initial enlightenment, although profound, often requires a clarification process. This can be seen in the case of Chan Master Dongshan, the founder of the Kaodong lineage of Chan Buddhism. He was the student and Dharma heir to Chan Master Yunnan Tansheng. The following dialogue explains the circumstance surrounding Dongshan's enlightenment. The master then took leave of Kuishan and went straight to Yunyan, to whom he related the circumstance leading to his present call. He immediately asked Yunyan, When inanimate objects expound the Dharma, who can hear it? Yunyan replied, The inanimate can. The master asked, Does the venerable sir hear it? Yunyan replied, If so, you will not hear my expounding of the Dharma. The master asked, Why do I not hear it? Yunyan raised his dust whisk and asked, Do you hear it? The master replied, No. Yunyan said, If you do not hear the Dharma expounded by me, how can you hear that expounded by inanimate objects? The master asked, from what sutra is quoted the sentence, All inanimate objects expound the Dharma? Yunyan said, Have you not read the Amitabha Sutra, which says, Streams, birds, trees, and groves in the Western Paradise all intone Buddha and Dharma? Thereupon the Master was awakened to the profound meaning and chanted the following gatha. It's so wonderful, so wonderful. Dharma taught by the inanimate objects cannot be conceived. To hear it with the ears is not to understand. 
Only can it be known when voice is heard by eyes. Despite this significant attainment in subsequent clarifying dialogues with Yun Yen, the text records that Dongshan still harbored some doubts. In spite of the farewell chat, the master still harbored some doubts about what Yun Yen had said to him. Later he happened to cross a stream, and upon seeing his reflection in the water, he was awakened to the profound meaning of Yun Yen's word and chanted the following gatha. Shun elsewhere to seek him, or from him you will stray. As I go on alone, I meet him everywhere. He is what I am now, but I am not what he is. Such should one's comprehension be, to unite with thatness. The Chang Dynasty records are replete with numerous similar examples. From this fact, it can be ascertained that Dogen was following a well-established Chan tradition by traveling to China to seek out other masters close to the source of transmission. In Dogen's case and that of his teacher Miozen, this was the Huanglong tradition of Chan. The problem that Dogen experienced was that he did not feel that any of the Linchi masters he met in China possessed the ability to effectively turn his words, in quotes, and remove his final doubt. Whilst experiencing this quandary, a pivotal moment presented itself in Dogen's life, as his Japanese Zen master, the Venerable Myozen, passed away. This event occurred in 1225, when Dogen had been in China for two years. Myozen, like his teacher Yosai, had been a strict observer of both Vinaya discipline and the Bodhisattva precepts, and it was this emphasis upon which correct behavior that Myozen used to teach and convey the Huanglong lineage. Records suggest that Dogen, as the tenth patriarch of Huanglong, also accepted and upheld this practice, inherently linked meditation practice to right conduct. Myozen, the ninth patriarch of Huanglong, died in a temple on Mount Tiantong. Although gravely ill at the time of his death, Myozen possessed extraordinary willpower and exhibited uncommon spiritual attainment. Myozen passed away, sat upright, in perfect meditation posture, following the well-known tradition established in antiquity by advanced Indian and Chinese Chan masters. In this simple and yet profound act, Myozen proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was indeed, truly, the ninth patriarch of the Huanglong lineage. Buddhist monastics and large numbers of lay Buddhists flocked to the area to view Myozen's body, which was eventually cremated. During the cremation process, witnesses recorded seeing five different colors radiate from the fire, and when the ashes were examined, three white pearls were discovered, along with 360 fragments of bone. Due to the extraordinary nature of these events, a statue was erected in honor of Myozen on Mount Tiantong. Myozen's departure demonstrates, demonstrates the strength of Linji Huanglong tradition and proves that he was a worthy inheritor of this tradition. This is indicative of the strength of Chinese Chan lineage that Dogen inherited in Japan as the 10th patriarch of Huanglong, it implies that the Huanglong transmission to Japan was not a substandard transmission. Dogen's continuing great doubt was a natural product of the requirement to deepen his understanding after the achievement of the all-important initial breakthrough, and not a fault of the Linji Chan tradition he had inherited. Just prior to this time, however, Dogen was on a pilgrimage of the three major Linji sites in Zhejiang province, when he met an old monk who informed him that the abbot of Tiantong Temple had passed away, and that a new abbot named Ru Jing had taken over. Dogen was advised to hurry back to Mount Tiantong because Ru Jing was highly skilled in teaching the Chan Dharma. Dogen's brief biography, written in Chinese, reads for the year 1225. In the spring of this year, whilst in Taizhou, I traveled to the Chiao Kuwei Yan area, where I met with the master known as Panchan Zhou. I then traveled to the Pingtian area of Mount Tiantai to visit the Wanyan Temple, where I met with the master known as Yuanji, who granted me the honor of viewing the Book of Chan Transmission. I then visited the Hu Sheng Temple on Mount Danmei, where I stayed the night. That night I had a dream where the Dharma protector of Mount Danmei presented me with a branch of plum blossoms. In that same year, on the first day of the fifth lunar month, at the Tiantong Temple, I first met with Master Ru Jing. It was here that Master Ru Jing transmitted the Dharma to me, face to face. In the summer, I traveled to Mount Aiyuan, where I visited Guangli Temple. In that temple, I met a monk who was originally from Sichuan Province, who served as the guest master, and we discussed the meaning of the Buddha Dharma. 
On the second day of the seventh lunar month, I entered the abbot's room of Chan Master Ru Jing, where I respectfully requested instruction on the Dharma. After spending the summer with Master Ru Jing, I finally gained enlightenment and thoroughly understood the Buddha Dharma. My mind and body fell away. On the eighteenth day of the ninth lunar month, I received the true transmission of the Dharma I, as followed by all the Buddhas of the past, as well as the Bodhisattva patriarchs. Later that year, at a place called Huan Shi, I read the Dharma transmission book of the Fa Yan lineage of Chan. Later, after returning to Japan, Dogen recalled this meeting with Master Ru Jing in greater detail. I first offered incense and bowed formally to my late master, Old Buddha Tian Tong, in his abbot's room on the first day, fifth month of the first year of Bao Ching of Great Song. He also saw me for the first time. Upon this occasion, he transmitted Dharma, finger to finger, face to face, and said to me, The Dharma gate of face to face transmission from Buddha to Buddha, ancestor to ancestor, is realized now. The passing of Myo Zen freed Dogen to study earnestly under Chan Master Ru Jing, who was of the Kaodong lineage, and their conversations are recorded in Dogen's personal diary of their meetings entitled the Japanese language Ho Kyoji, or Bao Ching Record. Master Ru Jing's approach to Chan training is encapsulated in the following quote. It's traded, translated into English as Body and mind are discarded when engaged in the practice of seated meditation. During the practice of intense seated meditation, thoughts do not arise. When this beyond-thought state is achieved, the desires cease and the five obscurations fall away. Chan Master Tiantong Ru Jing came from the Zhejiang province and was the Dharma heir of Zhuan Zhejiang. During his lifetime, he stayed in a number of famous temples in other parts of China before settling on Mount Tiantong. He was renowned as a good Kaodong Chan teacher who could turn words with a poetic, graceful ease. Although Dogen recorded Master Ru Jing's existence and method, Master Ru Jing is also included in other Chinese-language texts such as the Five Lamps Meeting at the Source. An example of Master Ru Jing's use of words is as follows. Chan Master Tiantong Ru Jing entered the hall. Striking the ground with his staff, he said, This is the realm of vertical precipice. Striking the floor again, he said, Deep, profound, remote, and distant. No one can reach it. He struck again and said, But supposing you could reach this place, what would it be like? Ay! I smile and point to the place where apes call. There is yet another realm where the numerous traces can be found. Through a combination of correct meditative practice, coupled with the dynamic and precise probing of his mind by Master Ru Jing, Dogen attained enlightenment through the Kaodong method. What this means in reality is that the final great doubt was removed by a slightly different and yet very similar approach to Chan practice. It is interesting to note that Master Ru Jing, although representing the Kaodong lineage, made extensive use of both the Gong'an and Hua To methods whilst teaching Chan, and although he recognized the importance of seated meditation practice, he did not limit his approach to it. In other words, within the Southern Song dynasty, a dichotomy did not exist between the Linji and Kaodong traditions. Indeed, the complete lack of any such separation can be seen by the fact that the previous abbot of Tian Tong was a Linji master, who passed on the post of abbot to a Master Ru Jing, who was of the Kaodong lineage. Master Ru Jing did not accept the prevalent view held in the time of China that the five houses of Chan each utilized a different method to realize the same enlightenment. For Master Ru Jing, all methods were merely expedient devices used to arouse inner potential and break the mind free from lifetimes of deluded activity. In pursuit of enlightening all beings, Master Ru Jing said, once when sitting in his abbot's quarters, Chan Master Tiantong Ru Jing, he's referring to himself, said, Gouge out Bodhidharma's eyeball and use it like a mud ball to hit people. Then he yelled, Look, the ocean has dried up and the ocean floor is cracked. The billowing waves are striking the heavens. Following his first meeting with Master Ru Jing, Dogen was granted permission to visit the abbot's room at any time of the day or night, while staying at Tian Temple as a resident monk fully committed to its rigorous and strict monastic regime. 
This was an unusual honor, as Master Rujing was renowned for refusing entry to his temple. These two years allowed Dogen to fully appreciate and penetrate the Sangha practice of Chinese Chan Buddhism, as conveyed by Master Rujing, through the perpetuation of his all-embracing Kaodong method. During intensive meditation training in the summer of 1225, Dogen was sitting diligently in the meditation hall when he heard Master Rujing shout at another monk for falling asleep. Master Rujing stated, When you study under a master, you must drop the body and mind. What is the use of single-minded, intense sitting? When Dogen heard, you must drop the body and mind, he was instantaneously awakened. This demonstrates that although Dogen was hard at work disciplining his mind through the act of strict meditation, it was the ability of Master Ru Jing to turn words that finally broke the last barrier of Dogen's great doubt. The meditative practice and monastic regime built up the inner potential or qi energy within Dogen's mind and body, and with Master Ru Jing's skillful prompting of another disciple, the subtle illusions of mind and body for Dogen finally fell away. Dogen was presented with the Kaodong transmission documents in 1225, making him the 13th patriarch descendant of Master Liangzhi and Benji, the founders of the Kaodong lineage, and spent the next two years assessing and refining this experience before returning to Japan in 1227. One year after Dogen returned to Japan, Chan Master Rujing passed away in 1228. Whilst back in Japan, Dogen successfully established the Chinese Chan lineage of Kaodong, known in Japanese as Soto. The central practice for the Japanese Zen school of Soto is termed Shikantaza, or in Chinese, Jirguang Da Zhou, which translates as single-minded, intense meditation, and which was taught and emphasized by Master Ru Jing, who is thought to have invented the term in China. However, despite the fact that Master Ru Jing continuously stated to Dogen that his particular branch of the Kaodong lineage was unique and conveyed the true Dharma, it is also correct to state the fact that Master Ru Jing's method was more or less in line with that of the Tang Dynasty Chan masters, representing any of the five houses. And this meant that Master Ru Jing, as a competent Chan master living in the Southern Song Dynasty, successfully and correctly conveyed what might be described as mainstream Chan at a time when there appeared to be many distortions of this teaching. Indeed, although Master Ru Jing continuously discussed the importance of the correct practice and implications of authentic meditation, his instructions to Dogen were always based primarily upon the teachings contained within the Northern Song dynasty text entitled Seated Meditation Record, or the Zhou Chan Yi, and did not go beyond it. Although ostensibly dating to 1103, this text is believed to have existed prior to this time, and consists of practical instructions for the correct practice of meditation as conceived within the Chinese Chan school. For instance, the Zhou Chan Yi states, Do not give rise to good and bad thoughts. When a thought arises, be aware of it. Awareness dissolves the thought. When this method is applied over a long period of time, all thoughts are forgotten and oneness is attained. This is important to master the skill of seated meditation. Dogen would later base his own meditation regulation, the Zazengi, upon the content of the Chinese Zhou Chan Yi. Dogen interprets the above extract as, Sit solidly in samadhi and think not thinking. How do you think not thinking? Non-thinking. This is the art of Zazen. At no point in the Zhou Chan Yi is the practice of silent illumination Chan, or Mo Jiao Chan, mentioned. It is clear that the Kaodong Chan master Ru Jing did not advocate or teach this method to Dogen whilst he was in China. However, upon returning to Japan, it is also clear that Dogen developed an interpretation of Japanese Soto Zen Buddhism that assumed an inherent integration of Master Ru Jing's conventional Chan practice of the Jirguan Da Zhou, or Shikantaza, with that known as silent illumination. So the rest of this article is about the differences and similarities between Chan schools and their types of practices, but that might be for a whole nother podcast. Upon his return to Japan, with his new lineage intact, Dogen returned to Keninji, where he studied previously, and gained some notoriety for his early writings, including the Fukan Zazengi, 
in English, universally recommended instructions for zazen, a short text emphasizing the importance and giving instructions on zazen or sitting meditation. However, due to the growing popularity of the Zen and Jodoshu schools, the powerful Tendai schools began generating hostilities, and Dogen decided to take up residence at an abandoned temple and began renovating in 1231. He began accumulating disciples and held the first ango, or intensive three-month practice period, in the summer of 1232. His primary disciple Ejo joined him in 1234 and began recording his lectures that would later be compiled as the Shobogenzo Zui Monki. There he gathered a great deal of patrons as well and completed a lecture hall in Soto or Monk Hall. In 1241, Zen Master Ekan and his students from the Nihon Daruma school joined him there and became his disciples. In 1243, the site was abandoned, and although the reason was not recorded, it is believed that they were forced out by the Tendai, and Dogen moved his followers to Echizen province, and with the assistance of Hatano Yoshishige, an official from Kyoto, he he constructed what would later become a Heiji Temple that stands to this day and is now the headquarters for Soto Zen, which has become a worldwide organization. In 1247, Dogen was invited to Kamakura to give lay ordination and teachings to the shogun, to which Dogen accepted and made the long journey. In 1252, he fell ill, and at Hatano Yoshishige's invitation, Dogen left for Kyoto in search of a remedy. In 1253, soon after arriving in Kyoto, Dogen achieved Parinirvana, or he passed away from this corporeal realm. Shortly before his death, he wrote a death poem. Fifty-four years lighting up the sky. A quivering leap smashes a billion worlds. Ha! Entire body looks for nothing. Living, I plunge into yellow springs. So left out of that biography was the auspicious sign that Dogen's mother received when he was conceived. In a dream, a celestial being spoke to her and told her that she was carrying a great saint. She proceeded to name him Monju, as in Monju Bosatsu, or Manjushri. And in his writing, Dogen will sometimes put a challenge to Vimalakirti, echoing the discussion that Manjushri and Vimalakirti had in the Vimalakirti Sutras, and I was told that in Zen temples in Japan, the main Yidam, or devotional deity, is a Manjushri statue. And due to his incredible genius and supernatural grasp of the Dharma and ability to speak, it's my pet theory that Dogen was an emanation of Manjushri, the Buddha-slash-Bodhisattva of wisdom, who appears constantly throughout the sutras and also throughout the world as historical figures to help the Dharma along in various traditions around the world. Now, this idea is just my thing that I made up, and it's not based on any traditional uh, ideas or anything. It's just my frivolous assumptions. And so, if it wasn't obvious, that's why I used the Manjushri Namasamgiti Tantra quote at the beginning. So, now we're going to get to the reading portion of the Shobogenzo Zui Monki, and I chose a certain passage. But Dogen's body of literature is massive. It includes poetry and expositions of the true meaning of Dharma, records and explanation of the Chan school lineage, true practice and understanding of emptiness, koan, explanations, transmission of the lineage, the nature of Buddha and sentient beings, and more than I can possibly put in a podcast. So for the chapter of the Shobo Genzo entitled Koku or Space, Chapter 77, translated by Guro Wafu Nishijima. And the translator note says, Ko means vacant or void, and ku means air, or space, or emptiness. So koku means space. Space and time have been fundamental concepts in philosophy since ancient times, and in science too. Even in ancient India, people frequently discussed the nature of space and time, and this tradition influenced Buddhism. So the nature of space and time became a very important subject in Buddhism in India. The topic also passed to Buddhism in China, and so there are many stories of Chinese Buddhist masters discussing space and time. In this chapter, Master Dogen discusses space. He first quotes a discussion about space between Master Shakyo Enzo and Master Seido Chizo. Then he gives his own explanation, quoting a poem by Master Tendo Nyojo, 
a discussion between Master Vaso Doitsu and a monk called Seizan Ryo, and the words of Master Vasumitra. And here we go. Because this place is where something ineffable exists, it is through the realization of these words that Buddhist patriarchs are caused to be. And because the realization of these words of Buddhist patriarchs passes naturally from rightful successor to rightful successor, the skin, flesh, bones, and marrow, realized as a whole body, are hanging in space. This space is beyond such categories as the twenty kinds of space. In general, how could space be limited only to twenty kinds of space? There are eighty-four thousand kinds of space, and there may be countless more besides. Zen Master Shako Enzo of Bushu asked Zen Master Seido Chizo, Do you understand how to grasp space? Seido says, I understand how to grasp it. The Master says, How do you grasp it? Seido clutches at space with his hand. The Master says, You do not understand how to grasp space. Seido says, How do you grasp it, brother? The Master grabs Seido's nostrils and pulls them. Groaning with pain, Sato says, It's very brutal to yank a person's nostrils, but I have directly been able to get free. The master says, Directly grabbing hold like this, you should have got it from the beginning. Shakyo's words, Do you understand how to grasp space? Ask, Are you too the thoroughly realized body as hands and eyes? Sato says, I understand how to grasp it. Space is one unadulterated mass, which, once touched, is then tainted. Since being tainted, space has fallen to the ground. Shakyo's words, how do you grasp it, mean? Even if you call it as it is, you have changed it already. And although it is like this, in changing with it that thus God exists, Sado clutches at space with his hand. This is merely understanding of how to ride a tiger's head. It is not yet understanding of how to grab the tiger's tail. Shakyo says, You do not understand how to grasp space. Not only has Sato failed to understand how to grasp it, he has never realized space even in a dream. And although he is like this, Shakyo does not want to describe for him that which is profound and eternal. Sato's words, How do you grasp it, brother? mean, Say a word or half yourself, venerable elder. Do not rely so totally on me. Shakyo grabs Sato's nostrils and pulls them. Now, let us learn in practice that Shakyo has put his body into Sato's nostrils. From the other side, realization is present of the words that nostrils pull in Shakyo. And although it is like this, space is a unity, and it is jostling. Sato groans with pain and says, It is very brutal to yank a person's nostrils but I have directly been able to get free. Previously, he has thought about meeting another, but suddenly he has been able to meet himself. At the same time, to taint the self is not permissible. The self must be practiced. Shakyo says, Directly grabbing hold like this, you should have got it from the beginning. I do not deny that grabbing hold by the state like this has got it from the beginning. However, because there is neither grasping in which Shakyo and Shakyo each extended a hand together, nor grasping in which space and space each extended a hand together, Shakyo is not yet relying upon his own exertion. In general, the universe has no gaps to accommodate space, but this particular story has long been resounding through space like thunder. Since the time of Shakyo and Sado, Though the practitioners who have called themselves masters of the five sects are many, those who have seen, heard, or fathomed space are few. Before and after Shakyo and Sado, several individuals have aspired to play with space, but few have put their hands on it. Shakyo has attained some grasp of space. Sado does not glimpse space. Daibutsu would like to tell Shakyo the following. Before, when you grab Sado's nostrils, if you wanted to grasp space, you should have grasped the nostrils of yourself, Shakyo, and you should have understood how to grasp the fingertips with the fingertips. Even so, Shakyo does know a bit about the dignified behavior of grasping space. 
Even a good player at grasping space needs to research the interior and exterior of space, needs to research the deadening and vitalization of space, and needs to know the lightness and weight of space. We should maintain and rely upon the teaching that the effort in pursuit of the truth, the establishment of the mind, the practice and experience, and the assertions and questions of Buddhas and patriarchs are just the grasping of space. My late master Tendyo Nyojo, or Ru Jing, the eternal Buddha says, the whole body like a mouth hanging in space. Clearly, the whole body of space is suspended in space. Archpriest Ryo of Seizan Mountain in Koshu once got to practice in Basso's order. Patriarch Basso asks him, What sutra do you lecture on? The master replies, The Heart Sutra. The patriarch says, With what do you lecture? The master says, I lecture with mind. The patriarch says, They say mind is like a leading actor, the will is like a supporting actor, and the six kinds of consciousness are the accompanying caste. How are these able to lecture on the sutra? The master says, If mind is unable to give the lecture, space is hardly able to give the lecture, is it? The patriarch says, Space itself is indeed able to give the lecture. The master swings his sleeves and retires. The patriarch calls to him, Archpriest! The master turns his head. The patriarch says, From birth to old age, it is just this. At this, the master gains insight. Eventually, he conceals himself on Seizan Mountain, and nothing more is heard of him. Thus, every Buddhist patriarch is a sutra lecturer, and sutra lecturing is inevitably in space. Without space, it is impossible to lecture on even a single sutra. Whether lectures are delivered on the mind as a sutra, or delivered on the body as a sutra, they are always delivered through the medium of space. Thinking is realized and not thinking is realized through the medium of space. The development of tutored wisdom and the development of untutored wisdom, the development of innate intelligence and the development of learned intelligence, each is in space. The act of becoming a Buddha and the act of becoming a patriarch, likewise, must be in space. The seventh patriarch, Venerable Vasumitra, says, The mind is the same as the concrete world of space and reveals the reality that is coterminous with space. When we are able to experience space, there is no right and nothing wrong. The mutual encounter and mutual realization in the moment of the present, between a person facing a wall and the wall facing the person, the mind as fences and walls, and the mind as a withered tree, these are just the concrete world of space. To those who can be saved by this body, Buddhas manifest at once this body and preach for them the Dharma. This is to reveal the reality that is coterminous with space. To those who can be saved by another body, Buddhas manifest at once another body and preach for them the Dharma. This is to reveal the reality that is coterminous with space. Being used by the twelve hours and being in control of the twelve hours are both the time when we are able to experience space. A big stone being big and a small stone being small is no right and nothing wrong. We solely investigate for the present as the right Dharma eye treasury and the fine mind of nirvana, space like this. Shobogenzo Koku preached to the assembly at Daibutsuji in Etsu'u on the sixth day of the third lunar month of the third year of Kangen. So we are now nearly at the end of the seventh month of the Water Tiger year, 2022, and this has been a doo-doo year for the world and for the Buddha Dharma as a whole. The war in Ukraine has sent the world into a militaristic tailspin. Corporations have seized this tragedy as an opportunity to cause massive inflation, destabilizing the world's economy. Food shortages are terrorizing the already traumatized developing world. Mass shootings in the U.S. and conservative overreach are eroding the foundations of democracy. And mass distraction, stress, and uncertainty are causing people to completely forget about their true nature and constantly seek outside themselves for answers and well-being. 
This year, four great Dharma masters that I hold dear to my heart passed away. First, it was Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen supermaster that changed the world with his teachings and presence and passed into nirvana on January 22nd. And then a few days later, the fourth Dodrup Chen Rinpoche, Tupten Trinli Pelzangpo, the incarnation of Jigme Trinli Ozer, the heart son of Jigme Lingpa, and principal holder of my lineage, the Longshen Ningtig, passed into Par Nirvana. And then shockingly and suddenly, the following month, His Holiness Dujum Rinpoche Sangye Pema Shepa passed into Parni Nirvana at age 32, going from perfect health to a corpse in a matter of hours. This was a huge loss for the Dharma, as his learning and realization at such a young age was astounding, and I can only think that a master of his caliber had plans for the future and needed to be at a certain age for what's to come in the not-so-distant future. This one made me really sad, but not just because of his age, uh, and we're all about the same age, I'm 33, he's 32, but I had hopes of meeting him and receiving teachings from him. But I guess I'll have to wait until they find his reincarnation. And finally, just the other day, Venerable Master Chin Kung of the Pure Land School achieved rebirth into the Pure Land of Amitabha. Master Chin Kung was highly influential for establishing me in the Dharma early on, as a prolific lecturer and master of the Pure Land School that I grew up in. And on a side note, I was a Pure Land Buddhist very early on in life. That was the first Buddhist tradition that I was ever introduced to. And my parents would take me to temple to make incense offerings and listen to lectures and so on. And then at age 13, I completely forgot about the Dharma up until age 26. And I had recently moved into a new neighborhood, and my study and practice began to unfold and blossom, and I would watch videos of Master Chin Kung talking about all aspects of the Dharma, and I would feel greatly inspired. And it just so happened that my next-door neighbor was and is a Buddhist, and every morning and every evening I would smell incense coming from her shed in the backyard, and I would hear her hitting her wooden fish and chanting the name of Amitabha. When I finally got a chance to ask her about her practice, she brought me into her shrine shed, and there amongst all of her dharma paraphernalia was a framed picture of Master Chin Kung smiling at me from the wall. I was stunned and I shouted that I had been watching his videos, totally unaware that his disciple lived right next door. And this was just one of the amazing things that evoked faith in the Buddha Dharma in me, and so obviously his passing to me was very sad. And although surely these tremendous masters have gone from bliss to bliss, meaning they achieved profound realizations in this life, and so their next life is going to be just fine. But for those of us here on earth who have not achieved high states of realization, we are left feeling a sense of grief that they are no longer with us. We who have no control of our minds and constantly seek outside of ourselves for a saving grace Look up to great Dharma masters for answers, blessings, and reassurance. So for those Dharma masters and teachers that are still with us, like His Holiness the Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Karmapa, Sakya Trichen, Tsongsar Kense, Kempo Sodarje, and Kempo Sotram Lodro, Lama Sotram Alioni and Jetsen Tenzin Palmo, Lama Zopa, Anam Tupten Rinpoche, Chekonjime Wanjok Rinpoche, Adzum Gyurme Gyamso Rinpoche, Yonge Mingyo Rinpoche, Kanjo Rinpoche, Shohaku Okamura Roshi, Gengo Akiba Roshi, Shoto Harada Roshi, Jakusho Kwong Roshi, Bob Thurman, Alan Wallace, Glenn Mullen, Reverend Hong Shur, Martin Verhoeven, Ajahn Jayasaro, Ajahn Sumedo, Ajahn Pasano, Biku Bodhi, Tanisaro Biku, Analayo Biku, our Gurus, Geshes, Kempos, Roshis, Fashers, Shurfus, Bantes, and Ajahn. I pray, no, I beg and plead with you to be safe, healthy, alive, well, happy, and turn the Dharma wheel of the greater individual and common vehicles for those of us turning on the wheel of samsara. If you're a practitioner, go to your teacher, cherish your time with them, listen well, and put their jewel speech into practice as this world needs Dharma so bad that it's scary. And so for that purpose, there is the prayer to the 16 arhats that I received from Kempo Sodarje for the long life of the Dharma teachers and flourishing of the Dharma throughout the world. 
And so I'm going to say that now. And about these 16 arhats, there's a story that Dogen recounts in his uh, writings from an event from his life. During a ceremony of gratitude for the 16 celestial arhats, called Rakan in Japanese, a vision of 16 arhats appeared before Dogen descending upon a multicolored cloud, and the statues of the arhats that were present at the event began to emanate rays of light. The rakans caused to appear felicitous flowers, exceedingly wonderful and beautiful. Dogen was profoundly moved by the entire experience, and took it as an auspicious sign that the offerings of the ceremony had been accepted. In his writings he said, As for other examples of the appearance of auspicious signs, apart from the case of the rock bridge of Mount Tiantai, of Taizhou, in the great kingdom of Song, nowhere else to my knowledge has there been one to compare with this one. But on this mountain, Kichijosan, many apparitions have already happened. This is truly a very auspicious sign, showing that in their deep compassion, the Arhats are protecting the men and the Dharma of this mountain. This is why it appeared to me. So these sixteen Arhats, these are disciples of the Buddha that the Buddha tasked with preserving the Dharma and protecting Dharma practitioners in the later stages of its dissemination. So the prayer begins with Buddha Shakyamuni. We pay homage to the incomparable one, whom we never tired of gazing upon, whose beautiful form is the color of gold, with one face, two hands, and is seated in cross-legged posture. While making the gestures of touching the earth and resting in equanimity, grant your blessings so that the life of the teacher may be secure and the teachings may flourish and spread. We pay homage to the noble elder Angaja, who dwells in the great snow-capped peak of Kailash, surrounded by 1,300 arhats, and holds an incense burner and fly whisk. Grant your blessings, so that the life of the teacher may be secure, and the teachings may flourish and spread. We pay homage to the noble elder Ajita, who dwells in the crystal forest on Sage Mountain, surrounded by a hundred arhats, and makes the gesture of equanimity with his two hands. Grant your blessings, so that the life of the teacher may be secure, and the teachings may flourish and spread. We pay homage to the noble elder Vanavasan, who dwells in a cave on Seven Leaf Mountain, surrounded by 1,400 arhats, and holds a fly whisk while making the threatening gesture. Grant your blessings so that the life of the teacher may be secure and the teachings may flourish and spread. We pay homage to the noble elder Kalika, who dwells on Copper Island in Jambunvipa, surrounded by 1,100 arhats, and holds golden earrings. Grant your blessings, so that the life of the teacher may be secure, and the teachings may flourish and spread. We pay homage to the elder Vajriputra, who dwells in the land of Sri Lanka, surrounded by a thousand great arhats, and holds a fly whisk while making the threatening gesture. Grant your blessings, so that the life of the teacher may be secure, and the teachings may flourish and spread. We pay homage to the noble elder Sri Bhadra, who dwells on an island in the Yamuna River, Surrounded by 1,200 arhats, and makes a gesture of teaching the Dharma in equanimity. Grant your blessings so that the life of the teacher may be secure, and the teachings may flourish and spread. We pay homage to the noble elder, Kanaka Vatsa, who dwells in the supreme land of Kashmir. Surrounded by 500 great arhats, and holds a jeweled chain. Grant your blessings so that the life of the teacher may be secure, and the teachings may flourish and spread. We pay homage to Kanaka Bharadvaja, who dwells in the western continent of Godania, surrounded by 700 great arhats, and makes the gesture of equanimity with his two hands. Grant your blessings so that the life of the teacher may be secure, and the teachings may flourish and spread. We pay homage to the noble elder Bakula, who dwells on the northern continent of Uttarakuru, surrounded by 900 great arhats, and holds a mongoose with his two hands. Grant your blessings so that the life of the teacher may be secure and the teachings may flourish and spread. We pay homage to the noble elder Rahula, who dwells in the land of Priyangu, surrounded by 1,100 arhats, and holds a jeweled crown. Grant your blessings so that the life of the teacher may be secure and the teachings may flourish and spread. We pay homage to the elder Kshudra Pantaka, who dwells on Vulture Peak Mountain, surrounded by 1,900 arhats and makes the gesture of equanimity with his two hands. Grant your blessings so that the life of the teacher may be secure, and the teachings may flourish and spread. 
We pay homage to Pindola Bharadvaja, who dwells on the eastern continent of Purvideha, surrounded by a thousand arhats and holds a text and alms bowl. Grant your blessings so that the life of the teacher may be secure and the teachings may flourish and spread. We pay homage to the noble elder Pantaka, who dwells in the heaven of the thirty-three, surrounded by nine hundred great arhats, and makes the gesture of teaching the Dharma while holding a text. Grant your blessings so that the life of the teacher may be secure and the teachings may flourish and spread. We pay homage to the noble elder Nagasena, who dwells on the slopes of Mount Meru, surrounded by 1,200 arhats and holds a vase and monk's staff. Grant your blessings so that the life of the teacher may be secure and the teachings may flourish and spread. We pay homage to the noble elder Gopaka, who dwells in Vihula, king of mountains, surrounded by 1,400 arhats and holds a text in his two hands. Grant your blessings so that the life of the teacher may be secure and the teachings may flourish and spread. We pay homage to the noble elder Abedya, who dwells among the king-like snowy peaks, surrounded by a thousand arhats and holds an enlightenment stupa. Grant your blessings so that the life of the teacher may be secure and the teachings may flourish and spread. We pay homage to the noble Upasaka Dharmatala, whose hair is in a top knot and who carries volumes of dharma, who sees Amitabha in the sky before him and holds a fly whisk and vase. Grant your blessings so that the life of the teacher may be secure and the teachings may flourish and spread. We pay homage to the four great kings who are mighty and wear the armor of diligence and who guard well the teachings of the Buddha in the four directions, east, south, west, and north. Grant your blessings so that the life of the teacher may be secure and the teachings may flourish and spread. Now, I dedicate the Dharma to saving ourselves, saving each other, saving the Dharma, and saving the planet, and saving all sentient beings from delusion and suffering throughout the ten directions in the three times. Namo Amitofo. Tofu.